I'm Fran Stoddard. You've joined the Community Matters Call on Community Broadband Networks, uh, brought to you by the Orton Family Foundation. Uh, community Broadband Networks are very exciting. They can offer fast, affordable, reliable Internet service for your community, and they can bolster your economy. We have a couple of great guys deeply involved in this work, and we'll look at how public power can successfully take the reins from investor-owned utilities. So I'm going to start with a couple of call you, uh, logistics, and then we'll get right to our guest speakers, uh, who are Christopher Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and Billy Ray from Glasgow, Kentucky Electric Plant Board. Um, and we will challenge them with your questions from the Google Doc. Christopher Mitchell is the director of the Telecommunications as Commons Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. He is a national expert on community broadband networks. He's been honored as a national doer, dreamer, and driver of public sector technology by Government Technology Magazine, among other honors. Mitchell also runs muninetworks.org, the comprehensive online clearinghouse of information about community broadband. Welcome, Christopher. I hope we can all hear you. I hope so, too. Am I coming through? I can hear you just fine. Terrific. All right. Well, at least as long as I have one audience member, I'll call. I'll keep talking. Um, <laughs> you know, it used to be that when I would be introducing a subject like this, I'd have to start with a pitch about uh, why broadband is essential for uh, communities. Um, you know, I'd say something along the lines of, um, you know, as an individual, I can live without electricity, but if my community didn't have electricity, it would really struggle. And that's the same thing with the Internet. But I'm going to leave it at that because I think most of the people on this call are going to agree readily that um, that this is a technology that really needs to be available to everyone for uh, us all to thrive, have a high quality of life, and have a really functional economy. Um, and so I'm just going to just sort of jump a little further down and say that um, traditionally essential infrastructure has been owned either by local governments or some level of government or at least heavily regulated and overseen to make sure that a private owner wouldn't charge too much or, or fail to upgrade it or basically otherwise not provide it in a manner that was best for uh, the economy and our quality of life. Um, but in the in the modern era, local governments have very little control over broadband. Um, they can't compel private providers to supply it. They can't compel universal access. They can't compel upgrades. Um, they basically can't guarantee that their local businesses and citizens uh, have the access that they need to really participate in the modern economy. Um, now, it might not be as much of an issue if we saw some progress on the federal level, but whether we're looking at gridlock or a situation where even we have both branches in harmony, the lobbying power of these cable and telephone companies really makes it unlikely that we're going to see the kind of regulation at the federal level that would get us the kind of Internet access we need. So that's why I do what I do. Um, our research has led us to really focus on who owns the network um, as a means of making sure that communities would have what they need. Uh, this is because basically owners make the decisions. Um, and so even if federal regulations are failing to promote the public good, when you have an owner of the network that cares about what's best for the community, then you can still have all of those things that you need to make sure that uh, you're, you're thriving. This is universal access, fast, 
affordable and reliable networks is that's sort of the the um trinity as I like to think of it um and so we've really come around to focusing on cooperatives um uh, municipal governments and other nonprofit arrangements um that are rooted in the community um to prefer so we have longevity um um uh, in terms of who should own and operate these networks for the best outcomes and it's not because we don't like small businesses we love small businesses uh the problem is that over time um because there's so much value in terms of establishing a monopoly and control of this essential utility <laughs> is that small local businesses may start off really uh committed to doing what's best for the community but over time they're really vulnerable to being bought um and then um controlled by a distant corporation or by owners who aren't located in the community um you know the decisions that we make today will be with us for decades um this is sort of a major turning point so that's all the ownership sort of stuff and our philosophy um but there's a technological introduction to these networks as well um which is that we focus on fiber optic networks um this is uh, the latest generation and frankly there's nothing in any research labs that suggests that fiber optic networks are going to be replaced anytime soon all of the research is going into how to make them operate more quickly as opposed to some other technology you have uh basically unlimited capacity on a single strand um uh whereas you have on cable and DSL I'd say to some extent engineering triumphs that allowed these systems to turn into internet capacity or internet um capable technologies cable was originally a one-way distribution mechanism and now we can send information two ways on it the problem is is that it's really geared toward a consumer lifestyle not really a producer or an active citizen lifestyle because i can download information a lot faster than i can upload it that's one of the things we really like about fiber is that we can have symmetrical networks although not everyone chooses to implement them in that way when a community owns the network they often sort of set the incentives so that it's more geared toward being an active citizen and and having a more of an ability to produce than encouraging you to just consume um so so just to wrap up the sort of introduction into the topic before i get into the the second part of my comments which will be on good strategies um i i hope that i've done a, a decent job but to to recount um i think there's two major things to look at one is the ownership structure that makes sure the network is accountable to the community locally uh and then the other is the technology that's being used um so that it's what we call future proof and it really is encouraging um uh a sort of producer and active citizen kind of uh um um sort of culture um and when you have those two things the ownership and the right technology we see more competitive businesses we see businesses that are able to thrive and businesses want to locate in that area we see a higher quality of life with um better educational outcomes for children that are able to make sure that they can access all the information they need for their schools uh for adults that want to pursue you know further online learning um there's all kinds of healthcare implications um but but also when you have this local accountability and fiber network it's not just a matter of having that in the present you have an assurance that you'll have that into the future because uh the network will um will be upgraded um rather than just um the tradition that we see with a lot of the cable and telephone companies which is to avoid upgrades as a way of increasing uh profits for the owners um so 
So I'm going to go into the strategies now in terms of how communities have gotten involved. Um, you know, just to, to lay down the basics, we've seen local governments do all manner of things. Um, some have actually gone into business in competition with the cable and telephone companies. Uh, some people find this to be really astounding, but quite literally in Chattanooga, Tennessee, for instance, the city owns a network that is run by the electric utility, and they are in competition with Comcast. They're basically offering all the same things Comcast does. They just have a slightly lower price typically, uh, and they have better customer service and much faster Internet speeds. Uh, but they're offering television and telephone services as well. So that's that's sort of the all-in approach, a, a higher-risk approach um, on one end of the continuum. And on another end of the continuum is local governments that have focused on um, building networks that um, – um, or just passive, which is to say um, not really doing much active, but making sure that there's conduit in the ground for fiber cables or even making the fiber available to other entities and not going further. And let me say that a lot of my comments um, here on will focus on the um, local governments because it's more applicable in urban areas, um, even in, even in um, rural areas where there's a town, um, typically, a co-op is better for the extremely rural, outside-of-town kind of areas, and um, um, and we can get into that in the questions if we'd like to, but I'm going to focus on what local governments can do. Um, and so most of the towns that have built their own municipal networks, uh, they um, were in areas that had electric power companies already, and so in that case, the electric power company would build out uh, fiber to its um, substations often first and sometimes further. And we'll hear a lot more about that with uh, Billy Ray, which is he's one of the great pioneers of this. Um, and that's one approach is this municipal electric, and it's been the most common. But what we've seen gaining ground lately is communities that do not have a municipal electric utility. Uh, and for that, I often talk about Santa Monica as a good example because they started in 1998 uh, where um, out of their basically uh, their information technology office, they call it uh, information systems department, they um, basically started putting fiber in the ground. They built a network that first connected their schools and libraries and municipal facilities, and they've expanded that to connect businesses and soon uh, low-income housing um, areas. So it's a, it often takes longer, um, and it's a less risky approach in this sort of incremental approach. Um, but it's uh, it's important to note that there's no one-size-fits-all, and there's a lot of things that any community can learn from each of these projects and crafting its own strategy. I think it's important to think in two different terms. One is a short-term strategy, and one is a long-term strategy. In the short term, I typically think of from now to maybe five or seven years, which is to say, how can we make sure we have access to everyone that needs it on good terms, and what do we have to do to get there? And over the longer term, which you might think is more than five years, um, up to 20 years, is what can we do to make sure that there's never scarcity um, of fiber so that other business models can thrive and that sort of thing. And this is something that um, we've learned about from watching what cities in Sweden in particular have done. Um, and so we can look at, delve into those more in the questions if people have an answer. But I want to go over a little bit more of an overview for a couple of subjects. Uh, one is taxpayer dollars. Most of these networks have not used taxpayer dollars. Um, they've been financed using other means, often uh, revenue bonds, which are not backed by the general public. 
sometimes by loans uh, within the local government, like an interdepartmental loan, um, and in other cases um, by what we call avoided costs, which is um, where a city takes uh, the money it's paying right now to lease services to like the schools and the libraries, and they use that money instead to build their own network, often greater reliability and higher speeds um, at a lower cost. And so typically there's enough money there not only to build the network but to keep improving it over time. Um, now, some communities have chosen to use taxpayer dollars, uh, some by choice, which is the case in uh, Leverett, Massachusetts, which uh, voted to uh, raise its tax, uh, raise its property tax uh, mildly in order to help ensure that they had the money to build a fiber network. Um, and in, in some other places where cities have made mistakes, um, where in the, some of the cities in Utah, for example, um, that have uh, were engaged in a very early approach, um, they made some mistakes and they ended up having cost overruns that they've now had to repay with uh, sales tax increases. Um, so that's sort of a, an overview of how taxpayer dollars um, come into it. Um, there's, um, let's see, I want to hit the, um, the low-risk strategies um, for communities that um, decide that they don't want to take that sort of all-in approach of trying to borrow a lot of money and build out to everyone quickly, which is the best way to ensure that everyone has access. Uh, but there's low-risk approaches, like I described with Santa Monica, um, and that can result in all kinds of benefits, like Wi-Fi in public areas, um, building to just some key businesses if you're trying to make sure the business district remains attractive and that sort of thing. Um, and then the higher-risk approaches typically involve competing with existing carriers uh, for residential subscribers. And that's where it's really hard, uh, frankly. Um, this isn't something cities go into lightly. It's a very... It's a, it's a discussion that has to be taken seriously and weigh the pros and cons. Um, I often say that, that this field is both competitive and not competitive in the sense that none of us really has a lot of choices for providers. But if a local government decides to get involved, um, you're going to find that it's cutthroat from the, other, the few other providers that are there. And so it's not like a NASCAR race where any one of 20 or 30 drivers could win. It's more like a boxing match where there's two people going at it furiously. And so you just have to be aware that this is something that the higher risk you take, the more you have to be prepared for a, uh, um, a, a difficult scenario. Um, you know, we've seen hundreds of cities succeed at this, so I don't want to make it sound like it's an impossible task, but we really want people to take it seriously when they evaluate what they should be doing. Um, and the final thing is just to go over some of the benefits that we've seen to the communities. And I think you know, Billy Ray will probably touch on this a little bit more, and I expect to go into it more in the Q&A. Um, but when you own the network, then you can really make sure you have control over upgrades. So this is everything from making sure that you have really fast connections in the future to just the – if you're a, a sort of a budget wonk like my wife is – knowing that you don't have to worry that three years from now your provider is going to say, hey, we're doubling your price. Uh, instead, you can budget five years out in advance knowing what equipment you need to stay current. Um, it's, it's, it's terrific for having a, a well-run budget. Um, you have more money staying in the economy because you're typically contracting with local companies. You have more people working for the company that are living in the area. 
whereas cable companies often have a more of a distributed workforce, and a lot of your bill actually goes out of town and is inflated and goes to big CEO salaries and to shareholders. Um, you don't have gimmicky billing. You usually have lower rates, and the costs stay low. We see municipal networks very rarely raise prices. Um, and I'd like to finish by just noting that if you imagine to yourself right now, if I have a problem with my Internet connection, in the worst-case scenario, is it easier to call my mayor or is it easier to call someone from Time Warner Cable or from the telephone company to try and get it fixed? And odds are, um, you know, if there's a really bad problem, it's easier to get a hold of your mayor than it is um, someone from one of these massive companies. Um, so those are some of the benefits of what we're seeing in terms of why communities are building it. And um, there's some, I know there's some great questions in the section already, so I look forward to addressing those after Billy Ray has a chance to talk. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, it's given us a really great overview of this whole piece, and um, it's a great introduction to William Ray, better known as Billy Ray, who is the superintendent of the Glasgow Electric Plant Board in Glasgow, Kentucky. Uh, it's a municipally owned power utility in a very small agricultural town of about 14,000. It has offered among the cheapest cable rates in the country since the 80s and was, I believe, the first municipal broadband network in the country. Billy is certainly an incredibly important pioneer in this um, arena. Thank you for being here, and uh, go ahead and tell us your story, Billy. Okay, Fran, I'll do that. Uh, am I coming through okay? You are. Thank you. Okay, uh, well, I'd like to echo everything Chris has already mentioned, and I won't uh, reiterate that stuff. I'll try to cut mine short and give people more time for questions. But just it probably would be interesting to make sure that everybody on the call understands how doable these projects are. Uh, Glasgow is a small community of uh, 14,000, 15,000 people. In south-central Kentucky, uh, nothing really notable uh, about Glasgow except that it is one of the 2,000 communities uh, across the country that does own its own power system. It's a public power community. And uh, some 30 years ago, uh, we looked out on the future of the electric power business and saw a need for uh, having telecommunications in parallel with our electric network. In other words, we couldn't see a future where we continue to operate for the next 100 years the same way electricity utilities had operated for the last 100 years. We felt like we would have to have constant communications with meters and devices, and we'd have to have thousands of sensors on the system so that we could better detect problems and reduce power flow losses. Uh, and then there was another thing that Glasgow had in common with perhaps 10,000 cities across North America, and that was that the people that live here hated their cable operator. Uh, so we took those realities and uh, began in 1987 to talk to the community about building a municipally owned broadband network. Uh, of course, at that time, nobody had ever heard of such a thing, and there was certainly no hue and cry from the community asking us to do this. Rather, it was exactly the opposite. We just went to the community and said, we think we need to do this, and that 
until such a time as enough devices are available for us to interface with a broadband network, the way we could start paying for this network uh, until we can get the real utilization out of it that we want would be to put cable television on it and go into direct competition with, uh, at that time, a company called Telescripts Cable, which was gobbled up by Comcast a couple of decades ago. And that's exactly what we did. The community kind of, instead of uh, uh, running out in the streets and begging us to do that, they just kind of shrugged and said, whatever. Uh, and, and we went about buying the equipment and having a system designed and teaching ourselves how to expand from being from uh, having a lot of craft people that could do electric utility stuff and and uh, learn to also ha how to do broadband related projects and uh, we started offering cable in competition with uh, telescripts and they responded by suing us in, in federal court and state court and lowering the cable rates to $5 a month on the streets where we had built our network. And we just slugged it out for uh, in the marketplace for a number of years, slowly taking market share away from uh, the incumbent cable operator, uh, not because we were smarter than them. We certainly weren't cheaper. Uh, we weren't going to try to match their prices. We couldn't do that. We had sold revenue bonds, and the bondholders expected a return on their investment. We couldn't deliver that at $5 a month. So we just started being more local. I uh, started offering superior service, and uh, uh, since we're a public entity, our board meetings were open to the public, and when people thought of a channel they'd like to have or some service they'd like for us to promote, they'd come to the board meeting and talk to us about it, and we often agree to do that. And uh, that competition flourished. Uh, the cable operator made us famous because the national media picked up the stories about this crazy idea of a municipality competing with a major uh, telecommunications company and that fame led us to other purveyors of technology. Uh, perhaps the most important one was that Benton Surf, who was with MCI at the time, became interested in the network that we had built and, and that we had demonstrated the ability to do high-speed data communications uh, around the city on that network. And he suggested that we might want to experiment with high-speed delivery of the Internet, which we had hardly even heard of in 93 when, when that conversation happened. Uh, but we decided to partner up with NCI and do that, and the community saw the Internet for the first time at high speed. Uh, they never really had a dial-up. There, there's no history of dial-up Internet service in our community. And that brings us to today where, well, actually, probably ought to stop off in the year 2000 when Comcast came to us and said, look, you've gotten 70% of the market now. We're tired of this. We're going to leave town. Uh, uh, if you'll pay us pennies on the dollar for the remaining customers that we've got, we'll just, we'll, we'll get out of your hair. And we agreed to do that, and they've been gone ever since. Uh uh, there are a couple of things I would point out that Chris might have made sound a little bit neater than they really are in the real world. Uh, 
first of all, these projects have a beginning, but they have no end. I, I counsel people all the time about how much is it going to cost to build this network and how long will it take to build it. Well, I mean, these, this, everything I have to say about municipal broadband uh, harkens back to a theory that I have that I call infotricity, the, the, the combination of electric power and broadband to produce a new product. Uh, that's not really electricity, and it's not really just Internet service. It's all of it uh, bundled together that allows you to completely restructure the way electricity is generated and consumed. Uh, but like the electric network, the broadband network is never complete. You know, you're constantly upgrading it or reconfiguring it, or you have a a customer that asks for some service that you haven't thought about delivering, and so you have to do some research on how you would do that and what it should cost, and you do a work order and go out and reconfigure to deliver that service. Uh, so it, it, this has to become, if a community does this, uh, it has to become a way of life, It ha in, in, from my perspective, it most likely needs to become a complete change in the way of life of the electric utility. I, I have a lot of trouble seeing how these projects stand uh, without having that anchor tenant being the, the telemetry needs of the electric utility. At the same time, I have a lot of trouble imagining a community allowing an electric utility to continue to do business in their community if they're not making plans to shift the way electric utilities operate so that they become more of an infotricity utility. So that's probably enough to kind of get the juices flowing on the question and answer part of this. I'll just kind of, I'll stop there. I'll pause there for a minute and see what y'all got to say. Billy, did you say infotricity? I did, yeah. <laughs> Everybody get that? That's, that's, a, that's a new term for me. Anyway, it, make, it makes a lot of sense. Thank, thank you both. Um, just one more, one thing I thought was just so interesting is that in, in this battle, this competition with major corporations, um, is you made it more local content. And I actually read somewhere that you gave birth to the first reality TV show. Yeah, we uh, captured some content that a lot of communities uh, aren't taking advantage of. Uh, nearly every county uh, has a... Uh, a uh, courtroom where district small claims court takes place, and we, we started uh, putting a camera in the courtroom and broadcasting small claims court, and it's, it's been tremendously popular. Terrific. Thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get to the questions now. I'll do the best we can. One of the things that's really terrific is that um, Chris and Billy have already started to answer a lot of these questions. So I'm going to kind of move to some of the ones that, that might not have been um, had some answers, so you know we we certainly don't want to skip over some that that are really important. Well, one of these things, one of the things that seems to be a, a something everybody has to do to begin this process is um, the third question down in making the case is what can localities do to educate the potential customer base about the beneficial uses of broadband for rural businesses, teleworkers and students. It seems that you really have to get the community behind you, especially, for example, Billy, when you say, this is a way of life. We have to continue this. How do you, well, just, just before we get that, Billy, would anybody 
in your town in Glasgow go back to the way it might have been? Do you think? Well, Fran, you know that's uh, that's that's a whole body of conversation there. I mean, really, one of the uh, things that disappoints us every day is that since we've been doing this for nearly 30 years, there are a lot of people here that don't understand the difference, that uh, they would be just as critical of Glasgow Electric Plant Board's broadband network as they would of Comcast. Uh, you know, it's kind of a what have you done for me lately kind of thing, and they don't, they don't, uh, there has been no great community effort to focus on the value of local ownership. Uh, they they would turn I would say they would turn on us in a heartbeat if somebody were a little cheaper or offered them uh, some kind of a, a bait and switch deal. Uh, it, it's fairly disappointing that uh, this unique uh, ownership relationship that is interesting enough for me to be on this call uh, is to, is pretty often not not even appreciated in the community where it exists. Still tenuous. Um, so, Christopher, um, there's an anonymous person from Virginia who's asking about this. Is there a way to educate more people about this and about the possibility and why it can be really important for um, any municipality? Yeah, there's a lot of things that can be done. Um, and I'll admit, frankly, that um, I'm not an expert on that so much. We've really focused on um, all the areas that, that don't have access as opposed to maximizing the benefits to those areas that already do have some level of access. And they're, they're somewhat interrelated as the more people want access to better the business cases for building to those areas. Um, but there's work that's been done by a number of foundations. Um, Blandon Foundation out here in Minnesota um, does a lot of work with communities. A lot of times it's meetings, it's discussions. Um, to discuss the ways that you can use the Internet. You know, some people are intimidated uh, by the technology, um, and so if they have someone to help them sit down and set it up. Um, a number of municipal networks have established computer labs. For instance, in uh, Galax, Virginia, um, there's a municipal network there, and uh, they've used some of the money to establish a computer lab with courses and teaching people how to use the Internet, how to use a mouse, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, I mean, I think there's there's some issues that that all, are all tied up in terms of with just general literacy, frankly. Um, and so uh, some of those issues are way beyond the the just the technology question in terms of helping people understand the value and taking full advantage of um, the networks. Um, but the, the final resource I might suggest is if someone really wants to go into this, um, you can look at some of the stimulus dollars in the, the broadband stimulus funds called BTOP, the Broadband Technologies Opportunities Program, because they dedicated a significant amount of money to those sorts of education programs. Um, so if you did some, some searching on the Internet, I think you'd be able to find some of those strategies. Okay. Um, uh, a lot of the questions that came in were about ROI, return on investment. Um, it's kind of a different thing than just dollars and cents. This is an investment um, on the part of a, of a community, and I know you have pretty strong feelings about this, Billy. Um, but again, how do you how do you shape that when you're talking to other people about what kind of return on investment doing this kind of project is creates? Well, I mean. 
I, yeah, I do have strong feelings about it. Uh, I, I've really kind of, I think the whole return on investment question has often been driven by the anti-municipal network group. Uh, it, it's a, it's a kind of a phrase of art. You know, whoever has done a return on investment uh, summary or analysis of uh, storm sewers or sidewalks or public parks or the police department. You know, once you cross over this boundary and believe that this new technology, similar to the new technology of 100 years ago, which was electric power, which took a while to be recognized as required infrastructure, now, fast forward 100 years later, I think we're coming to the point Glasgow came to it 30 years ago, but more and more communities are recognizing that you really don't need to have a local government if they can't provide basic infrastructure for a people, and that would include transportation, and now includes communication. So to be to be uh, shackled to prove that you're worthwhile is not a test that's applied to any other municipal infrastructure that I'm aware of. Uh, and I think that uh, we shouldn't play in their sandbox by getting locked into trying to do their Wall Street-based calculations on these things. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that comes to mind with return on investment is a community in southwestern Minnesota that I'm pretty familiar with, Wyndham, town of 4,600 people. It's actually a bit smaller than it, than is advisable to build a municipal fiber network offering television, telephone, and Internet. Um, typically, you want to get more people together. Uh, but they did it for 10 years now, and we just did a financial uh, examination of them. And, and I think that they, they, they funded it using revenue bonds, but I think you could make a case that about a million dollars over these 10 years uh, have gone from the general fund uh, into the network. So that's $100,000 a year. Um, that network kept 47 jobs in the community from just one employer that was going to move out of state because uh, their needs could not be met by the incumbent. Uh, the employer was actually located a mile out of town, so the community built a fiber link out of side of town to connect them. Um, so that's 47 jobs, um, you know, for $100,000 a year. Um, they have had free access to their city departments and the library for Internet access for all this time. Uh, their property values are higher. They pay some of the lowest prices in the nation for uh, telephone, broadband, and television. Um, you know, I think if, if you went to just about any town in America and said, you know, if we raise your taxes $10 and we provide you with $100 worth of benefits, um, I think people are going to take that deal. Uh, and that's sort of what we're seeing in Wyndham, which is that for $100,000 a year, they've had all of these tremendous benefits because of this network. Uh, and in recent years, that network's been expanded to eight other outlying towns that have very poor access. They were all on dial-up or satellite. Uh, and so because those, commu those communities are benefiting from Wyndham's um, having been a pioneer in this field, uh, and that network will continue to expand likely in southwest Minnesota to farm communities that are otherwise left behind. Um, and so I, I fully echo um, Billy Ray's you know, issue that, that this is not uh, something that you can plop into an ROI um, calculation as though it was a private business because it is essential infrastructure. And almost all the benefit that comes from these networks is indirect. 
and we're only if you're only going to measure the direct benefits in terms of revenue, then you know you're focusing on the tip of the iceberg and miss, missing all the stuff that's underwater. Thanks. I'm going to get a little to physical infrastructure considerations because um, you started talking about people out just outside the main town and how people are getting. There are a lot of questions about how to get kind of the not the last mile, but even the mile before the last mile. Um, so for people in wooded, hilly communities, low-density, mountainous areas, a number of people have called in, how do you move it from the main community out to the rural community? And do you um, – so thoughts, thoughts on that piece of business. Is wireless in that formula? If they have electricity, it ought to go exactly the same way they get their flow of electrons. Hmm. You know, that's – and I've, I, I just – that was exactly what was on the tip of my tongue. And I just – let me just start with a philosophical call. I feel like a lot of people have this issue like, oh, it's just too hard and I live in an area that's very rural or my community is – you know, I saw one person from Colorado have this question. And Colorado does have a county that's incredibly hard to connect. But they do have electricity. You know, we've decided as a country that it was worth making sure that everyone had access to this incredibly important technology. And that's not an act of charity. We all benefit because those people in that town in Colorado have access to electricity. They're more productive. They buy products that the rest of us make. They come up with great ideas that impact the rest of us. And so we have to recognize that we all benefit by making sure everyone has access. Um, and so... I would say that wireless may be an interim solution, uh, you know, because it's going to take many years if we had a, an appropriate program to make sure that everyone had access. And so maybe you want to try and get wireless in the next year or two while it takes five years to build fiber out. But we can't settle for that. We have to, we have to um, all agree that everyone needs um, excellent access so we can unlock our potential as a country. Um, but in the, in the practical steps, what it really comes down to is I think, you know, you need to find ways of working with um, with local areas. So Minnesota has several examples of counties working together, two counties next to each other, the towns within them and the townships. Um, there's a project called Sibley. Um, it's the Renville-Sibley Fiber Project, um, RS Fiber. And um, they've really been pioneers, and people should look them up to get a sense of how they've examined different models um, because there's a mix of co-ops and unlocking some uh, municipal funding and that sort of thing. Um, if you don't already have a nearby electric co-op uh, or a telephone co-op that could expand. Um, but in those areas, that's, those are the directions we're looking is ultimately co-ops and partnerships with local governments um, to try and get enough people that you can spread the cost wide enough that it, it'll pay, pay off. Uh, in a reasonable 20, 30-year time period. Terrific. And know that both uh, Chris and Billy have added an enormous amount of resources at the end of the Google Doc. I'm, it's really an impressive list. So you can go pretty pretty deep um, from just using the Google Doc. Speaking of, of Wi-Fi, uh, Brian from New Mexico is concerned about Wi-Fi. Now, there are a lot of people that feel maybe it's not good for human beings to have all this Wi-Fi um, everywhere, uh, pushback or reaction to threats of Wi-Fi, or do we just really push fiber as as the connection to the future? I think um, 
I would I would say that I understand that there's a lot of concern um, regarding Wi-Fi, and I really appreciate that given the sort of lack of seriousness with which we have take science in this country in many ways that some might not um, take heart in the a lot of the scientists saying that, that they don't see a problem with Wi-Fi. Um, my objection to Wi-Fi is a little bit different, which is that I just don't think it's a very good technology for delivering high-quality access to people inside their homes. And so I would sort of avoid the question by saying that uh, local governments are smarter to focus on getting these fiber optic networks in um, rather than wireless. Uh, over 20 or 30 years, fiber optics are much more cost-effective. Uh, they're less of a hassle to maintain. Their operating costs are lower. Um, frankly, I think citywide Wi-Fi is one of those things that's um, – we're going to continue to see Wi-Fi in parks and things like that, but to try and blanket an entire city with it uh, may not be the best approach. I agree. I agree. It also kind of self – it's pretty much self-installs, too. You know, I can tell you that in Glasgow uh, – we have not attempted to install citywide Wi-Fi. We install citywide broadband and fiber, but at every point where somebody accesses that broadband, they put a Wi-Fi router in. So you can you can ride your bicycle from one end of Glasgow to the other and be on Wi-Fi the whole time. But we didn't put any of it in. It's all coming out of people's houses and businesses. <laughs> I I wanna I'm. I think I'd love to visit your town. Um, I'd like to. It's get... lovely. I was there last summer, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. Um, I, I want to get to uh, just uh, Breitbart. I believe is um, how he uh, pronounces his name from the Open Technology Institute. I hope is online. Maybe he can press star six um, to answer a question um, from the District of Columbia that asks, given broadband resources and adaptations and how they vary by neighborhoods, how do you plan for a whole city? Now, I know Josh um, is very involved in planning citywide networks. Josh, are you on the call? I, I am, yeah. Terrific. And I think I managed to unmute. Um, right. and, and, that, and actually, this ties directly into um, the comments uh, Chris and, and Billy are just making about Wi-Fi, um, because... Uh, once you start looking at, well, where where in our city might we want to uh, put uh, hotspots or focus, uh, determine how we do our build out of a broadband network, um, you know, you've got to start looking at those variations. So um, there are uh, there's not great data on broadband adoption. There's some some data, um, and your cities may have information about what types of infrastructure exists. And then there are other data sets you want to layer in with that. And so, um, uh, my, along uh, my colleagues, uh, Georgia Bullen and, and Greta Byram, I've uh, been looking at, um, what some of that data is. And we have, uh, a brief that we'll add into the, uh, document that helps you to, they, you can look at data to determine, um, you know, how, what those variations are. And then also, um, where people might not have the technical skill to do the self-installs of, uh, of Wi-Fi, um, we also started uh, developing some of those training materials to guide people through that, and um, uh, and help communities start um, doing their own planning. And I think that ties back to the earlier conversation about community ownership. So how do you get communities involved in deciding what kind of internet they need, so that when you build it out, they have a sense of ownership and uh, you know and that 
that stake that really keeps it thriving. Uh, so those are those, those uh, resources are added into the documents as well. And thanks to Chris and Billy Ray for, for all their comments. Terrific, Josh. Um, you can you know stay on the line in, in case there's something else you want to add here. But I'd like to. Um, a lot of people, of course, are interested in costs. We talked a little bit about it. Um, there is from Alabama, um, Francesco. What costs are associated with citywide high-speed internet access? Um, uh, someone, Jennifer from Ohio, the cost for connecting individual households and maintenance costs. Someone else asking about financial models. Um, Billy or Chris, um, how, how do we begin to really look at what this is going to cost? Because we have to start somewhere. It's a good idea to get bonds and loans and move money from one place to the other or possibly increase the tax rate. But what does it cost? The, the costs really vary based on what kind of network we're talking about. Um, and so, you know, if you're trying to do what, for instance, uh, Chattanooga did or what, what Billy Ray did, if you're trying to duplicate that today, um, I would say back of the envelope, you're looking at $1,500 per household about. And now that includes your costs of borrowing money, the paying the interest, all that stuff over 20 years. Um, you're going to borrow that amount in revenue bonds likely. Um, and so that's that's one approach, and it's very it's a high cost. Although, you know, it's uh, it often works out to about the same of uh, as a sports stadium, which I believe Lexington in Lexington, Kentucky, is one of the discussions they're having right now as they consider a municipal network. Um, but the there's other things to consider, and one is um, what Santa Monica has done, where you know their network has cost somewhere in the order of five to seven million dollars, uh, from what we can tell. Uh, to build over 15 years. Um, that money, uh, some of it came from um, the city budget where they were previously would have spent that money on other connections, paying um, Verizon to deliver those connections. Instead, they spent it on a network. Uh, some of that money came in the form of grants uh, where they were expanding connections to traffic signals for traffic prioritization. Um, some communities are spending money on um, reading uh, their electric meters remotely, the infotricity light, you might call it. Um, and, um, and so there's a lot of ways that money's already being spent. Um, but the issue is, is on the other side is, you know, what are you enabling with those investments? Um, you know, if I was talking with Josh actually a few days ago, and and I was thinking that one of the things that could really enable the kind of networks that that a lot of the smart folks at uh, the Open Technology uh, Institute are working on would be a city that has put fiber in the ground, like Santa Monica did, um, and just makes it available at an incredibly low cost um, to other people. Now, Santa Monica could jack that rate up if they just want to try and make a lot of money back, or if they keep the rate low, they could enable people uh, building really interesting kinds of networks on top of it. Um, and so it's, it's it's really complicated because it's both costs and revenues. I agree with all that. Uh, <clears throat> another simpler way to put it, though, is that uh, it will cost less than the value it delivers. You know, it's going to have positive uh, uh, value no matter what kind of technology that you put in, how expensive you go, uh, how big the community is. I think Chris said something very important a few minutes ago that there's a, there's a small size boundary. You know, uh, if you're not going to do this in cooperation with several other neighboring communities so that you can spread the overhead cost of the 
the net, the center of the network, the network operations center. Anything, you know, a population below 5,000 or so gets really dicey. Uh, but other, other than that, you know, the most important, th- the biggest ongoing cost is not the debt service for the plant that you put in. Uh, the biggest cost is actually the, the people, uh, which is the much more essential an appreciated role uh, in our network is the fact that I've got a window right out here where people can walk in off the street and bring in their new iPad or their new smartphone or whatever they've got and talk to some local experts about how to make it interface with our network so they can get their email, so they can log on to Netflix, whatever it is. Uh, but even with that additional cost, Separated from the plant investment, uh, we're able to interest bond buyers uh, in buying revenue bonds where we pledge the revenue to pay off the bond. So, you know, it it, it works. You know, as long as you're over that minimum, it's not going to work for a neighborhood of 500 homes, but uh, 5,000 people and up, it, it ought to work just fine especially if it's coupled with an electric utility where they've already got the the poles and the billing system and a bunch of smart people that know how to take a technology and democratize it uh, for their community. Uh, a lot of people are also asking questions. You know, how do you, how do you get that started um, to have municipalities um, and or co-ops? Some people say their municipality maybe – might not be very functional, but municipalities to work with telecom to develop fiber. I mean, somebody from West Virginia asked, do we have to get permission to use their lines? Um, how does that, how does that um, cooperation, that connection, that partnership even begin? You know, let, me, let me just say – go, go ahead, go ahead, Billy. I started all the others. Well, I was going to say that it starts off at the ballot box. You know, you got to elect the right leadership for the community. And uh, right after that, it starts at the boardroom of the city council or the electric utility or the boardroom of the investor-owned utility uh, where decisions are made uh, about your community. And you start making noise and making sure that it's clear that, that uh, they know what the community is asking for. Yeah, I would build on that by just saying that um, it's a real concern in terms of a dysfunctional municipality or even in some cases, you know, corruption. Um, and and if that's your issue, if your local government doesn't work, then probably broadband is not your biggest problem. Um, now, in the areas where that's not the biggest concern, what you want to do is you want to start um, educating yourself. You know, look at a couple of the different models, um, both um, my organization and the uh, Open Technology um, Institute have written different approaches. Uh, we've done case studies um, of how different people have um, gone about this. Um, and you want to you want to start by basically finding some like-minded folks to to be excited about it to form a sort of citizens committee. You want to find some local businesses and local leaders that are excited about it and recognize that there's a a need. Um, You want to find someone within the local government that is excited and will make sure that it's going to be moved forward and taken seriously and evaluated, uh, or someone from the local cooperative. Um, But basically, you need to educate yourself and you need to network um, and figure out how to spread the idea around uh, so that you can find 
um, ultimately a source of money because these networks cost money. And that's one of the reasons local governments are so often involved is they have access to capital. Okay, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm going to start asking for some concluding kind of ideas. You know, either what's the one thing people can do to get a project started, and or as Carolyn uh, from Indiana asked, if you could name three things states could do to support expanded rural broadband, what would they be? So what are some just really concrete things that people can think about doing next week to get this process going. Billy, you want to give that a stab first? Sure. Uh, ask uh, ask for city councils or utility boards to pass resolutions uh, in favor of uh, local broadband networks. Uh, if there are franchise renewals going on for a cable or telephone or electric utility in your community or in your county, lobby for language in those uh, renewals, franchise renewals, that either force them to provide uh, access to low-cost broadband or at a bare minimum get a clause in there saying that they have, if they place poles on the public right-of-way that they have to, to uh, openly provide access to those poles uh, for the community to build its own network if it should decide to somewhere down the line. I, I think those are a couple of good places to get get the conversation started. Terrific. Thanks, Billy. And, and Christopher? Sure. There's something that we should all be doing, and that's speaking with our elected officials. I can't tell you how many times I've met with elected officials from the local to the federal level, and they say, you know, I get a lot of phone calls, but I don't get a lot about people complaining about their Internet. Um, and I think that's because most of us don't think to complain to our elected officials about the Internet. We complain to the cable company or to our families and our neighbors um, or on message boards. But we need elected officials to know that we're dissatisfied and frustrated because um, otherwise they're never going to stand up to the big money that comes in from the uh, – um, the lobbying campaigns, the campaign contributions uh, from the big telephone companies. You know, if Comcast buys Time Warner Cable, it's going to be the fourth largest lobbying entity in Washington, D.C. If, if elected officials aren't hearing complaints about them, then they're going to listen to those lobbyists who are constantly saying, we've got everything under control. So talk to your elected officials. Make sure they know that your needs are not being met um, and that sort of thing. Um, and the other the other question regarding, you know, what states can do, it was sort of snuck in there a little bit, I think. I want to touch on that, which is Minnesota's got some great bills proposed right now, um, and that would involve states uh, trying to encourage co-ops to expand and, uh, and partnerships with local governments and co-ops or local governments and other local governments. Basically, the kind of entities that you know are going to be around in 10 years those are the organizations we should be figuring out how to make sure they have the capital necessary to either expand existing networks or to create new ones. Uh, and I think a lot of that can be long-term, uh, low-interest loans as opposed to some form of ongoing subsidy. Awesome. Thank you both, Chris and Billy, for your insights and knowledge. You've made um, us all feel that this is possible. It's, with, it's within grasp. Um, it might be a fight, but this would make our community stronger and um, better, and it's terrific. Thank you both for all of your um, good this work. Is, uh, this and is your Sherwood. Could I uh, uh, 
put one last thought in here. We right. need to repeal the laws that the cable codes and telcos passed that created barriers to municipal entry. Right. Yes. Amen. So start. That's another good place to start. Thank you so much. For more resources, Chris also runs the MuniNetworks.org website where you can also find his Broadband Bits podcast. It's a short weekly audio show featuring interviews with people who are building these community networks or otherwise are involved in Internet policy. And we hope all of you help us add to the Community Matters Google Doc. Uh, we all benefit from your additional comments, answers, and expertise. A podcast of this call and all the call notes will be emailed around and posted online, and this is how we all e learn from each other. Uh, Caitlin is also posting a link to a five-question survey at the top of the Google Doc um, in the announcements section. So if you could take a moment to complete that survey and tell us about your experience on today's call. It helps us learn how we can make this series more useful to you. One thing we've said is we will get out on time. I've got 30 more seconds just for one more announcement. <laughs> uh, sorry to keep you a minute over. Our next call is on the 10th. Watch out for more information on that. We're also excited to announce the release of the Citizens Institute on Rural Design's request for proposals for rural communities facing art and design challenges. These communities selected will receive $7,000 to support planning and implementation of a multi-day design workshop, as well as technical support from experts in community design. So you can visit rural-design.org for more information and the application, which is due May 6th. Community Matters will offer two application assistance calls in April for those interested in applying, and you can register for those calls now at, at the communitymatters.org website. Thank you all for participating, and good luck with your broadband projects. We hope you all join us again next time. Bye-bye.